Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Hi, this is Bill. I thought this interview was so good, I wanted you to hear it again. So enjoy. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and we are already talking 100 miles an hour here in the studio as we are getting ready for Guy Talk. And boy, I tell you, once we all gather, (laughs) it is so much fun. So here's what we do on on this program is you send over questions and we do our best to answer them. I've got a power panel around the studio. I have Jeff Verdorn, Trevor Rubenstein, and Aaron Broughton. That is my power panel. They know where their power comes from. And I'm looking forward to hearing your questions today. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, welcome once again to the show. Thanks for having us. Hi, Bill. Great to be here. uh, Jeff, you recently returned from? Israel. Tell us about your trip. It's always a wonderful time to go to Israel. This is my fourth trip. My first time was in 2014. And uh, many people may recall that in 2014, that was one of the summers where uh, the folks in Gaza decided to fire about 5,000 rockets into uh, Israel. And while we were there, 1,400 of them were launched into Israel. So that was a very interesting trip. I forgot to check off on my tour form the no rockets option, I think. (laughs) Uh, But this time on, on my fourth trip, and actually in the other two trips, there were also incidences that happened. Uh, but on this trip, there was no incidences whatsoever. The weather was great. The, our uh, guide, Aron, his name is Aron, uh, was wonderful. And it was 13 of us, uh, all good friends of mine. And we had a wonderful time. And it's just a blessing. There's so many special places. You know, when you, for example, when you get on the Sea of Galilee, every time you get on a boat and you go out on the Sea of Galilee, there's, there, you get this emotional response. You're, I've been in boats all my life. But when you're on that body of water, for some reason, you just get this this emotional reaction in your core, you know? So it's a, it's a very special place. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, I think that it's important to let people know it's a, it's a very safe place. And gen- generally, it's not the rockets that you have to worry about. It's the drivers. Cause... <laughs> <laughs> I second that. <laughs> and Aaron, you lived in uh, Israel for six years? Yes, definitely. So, and yeah, you know exactly what Jeff's talking about. Yeah, I, I got a question, though, Jeff. Did, did you catch any fish? We uh, the the guy in the boat threw his net out. Um, I was actually expecting our guide to sneak off the other side of the boat and come up and say he was fishing for men. Uh, he's done that in the past for larger groups with high school students. He didn't do it this this time. So, uh, but no, we didn't catch any fish. And I'm glad that you're back. Uh, you were you were gone for a couple of weeks, so it was it was nice. In the last, I miss Sky Talk. Oh, of course, I it, did. It's so fun. It it's is so fun. So let's clean up something that was discussed yesterday that you talked about. Wait, yeah, it was yesterday. Yesterday, and because Aaron, you talked about it as well on Guy Talk last time you were on, and that is about the parallel between the wedding and the way in which the um, in Israel you would go about um, getting a bride. And the parallel between that and John. Yeah, so in John 14, it says that Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will surely come back and take you to be where I am also. And 
when what I was doing yesterday, we were talking about the rapture of the church, and I made the parallels between the events of the rapture and what a first-century Jewish person would have understand Jesus is saying, they would have recognized that he's describing the marriage process, where a groom would come, they would be pledged to a woman, to a bride, um, and we could walk through the ten steps. There's actually ten steps in this process that parallel the rapture of the church. When we, the who is called the bride of Christ in Scripture, are caught up uh, when that trumpet sounds and caught up to heaven with Christ. So that... John 14 passage says we, he's going to bring us to the Lord when you walk through the marriage tradition. Um, and, and I don't know how much in detail it would take several minutes to kind of walk through those 10 steps if we want to walk through those. But it's a beautiful picture that at an unannounced time, the bride was just to be ready. That trumpet, that shofar would blow and the groom and the people with the groom would pick up the bride and literally carry her back to her father's house. And so the church one day is going to be snatched up or snatched away or carried away, harpazo in the Greek, be snatched up to God back to our father's house. And Aaron, you were talking about the way in which the the cup of wine would be presented in front of the, the woman and then she would either take a sip or not or push it aside. And that would be the acceptance. Yeah, that was basically the marriage proposal. And- okay. So, you know, back in first century, so I think one thing to encourage our listeners and ourselves to, a lot of times when we read the Bible, we read the Bible from Gentile eyes. We forget that there's a Jewish context and a story that's going behind there. So to Jeff's point exactly, what's going on in the background? What's Jesus? What would the disciples have understood what he's talking about? For us here, 2,000 years later, we're like, we just read it move on. So this is really deep. So the the idea was when you had made a proposal, when a young man, he sees this beautiful woman at the well, let's say, and he doesn't go and ask her on a day, hey, you want to go with me to the bagel shop after the synagogue service? You know, think of a search first century pickup line. Yeah, standard first date. <laughs> exactly. <right? laughs> and so he goes and basically writes out a ketubah, a marriage contract, and that is agreed upon by the families. Sometimes there's a matchmaker involved. Sometimes the families just work it out. And in fact, in, in uh, some Orthodox Jewish customs today, they still do something like that today. It's, it's minimal, but it's still not unheard of. So with that in mind, so once it's agreed upon, they drink a couple of wines, agreeing upon it, the contract, the covenant. Think of a covenant, like a marriage contract. And then the groomsman, he will take that cup and he'll put it in front of the, his bride-to-be. And that's the proposal. If she drinks it, she says yes. If she says no, she puts it aside. But who knows when the next marriage proposal is going to come. She's not getting younger. She's probably like 12 or 13 at this time. <laughs> you know. So for the sake of the story, she drinks the cup. Mm-hmm. And then he gets up from the table and he basically says, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he starts building that little honeymoon cottage adjacent to his father's house. Um, I think I made a share this time. That's how I proposed to my wife. I put the cup before her and she says, do you want me to drink it? <laughs> I didn't say anything. <laughs> Held her in suspense. So she drank it, and then I did get on one knee and, you know, did, did what she understood. But anyways, that's a little bit of the background. And, of course, that marriage contract that you just talked about and the sealing or the agreeing to that contract with a cup of wine. Jesus, of course, in Luke 22 says, in this cup, this is a cup of the new covenant, right? And so Jesus was portraying that uh, to the bride saying, hey, I'm going to I'm, my bride is going to say yes to me. This is the cup, and it seals the new covenant that we participate in, obviously, through faith, when we say yes to Jesus Christ. One of the things I believe you said yesterday, Jeff, and I, I don't know if it came out the way you wanted it, but 
it's you said take and drink this wine as a symbol of my blood and the comment that came in from my friend Lee was uh, there is nowhere does it say this bread and this wine is a symbol yeah I think I used the word represents uh, but symbol is the same thing um, I should have quoted the verse maybe exactly in verse 20 uh, Luke 22 it says uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood I think I said it represented Christ's blood which is poured out for you uh, but even though the scripture doesn't say a symbol or represents I think it does the the body and the blood of Christ are represented or symbolic of the 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 body the bread and the wine are symbolic of Christ's body and his blood look for our Catholic friends, I have a, a difference of interpretation. In Catholicism, they have what's called transubstantiation, that when they eat this bread and drink this cup, when the priest blesses it, it actually becomes the body of Christ without appearing to be the body of Christ. Um, I don't think that's uh, described in Scripture, and I think it's un- unnecessary. I think it's a symbol or symbolic and and when Paul gives the instruction on the last supper he says whenever you drink this eat this bread and drink this cup do this in remembrance of me it's a reminder when we have the lord's supper what we are doing is proclaiming the lord's coming until he comes but it's done in remembrance i don't believe that when we do the lord's supper it actually becomes the body and the blood it's representative or symbolic of the body and the blood Aaron, your your thoughts on this you know, there's other places where there's a seven I am statements of Jesus. Um, for example, the first one is I am the bread of life. And he basically says, even around that context, those who eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, he's talking about association. Well, he wasn't going around at the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, everyone nibble on me. That wasn't the point of mm-hmm. his teaching. It was the idea of belief that if you accept me, believe on me that you will never hunger, you will never thirst. And in the same way, I, I, I agree as well. When at the Last Supper, and think of it as the last Passover, all this is linked back to Moses. All this is linked back to Exodus. When this is the, the deliverance of from slavery in Egypt, and with Jesus, the deliverance of our slavery to sin in that relation, that covenant relationship with, with him. And so I think in the natural, I would say, just let the text speak for itself. Go with a natural, ordinary um, interpretation. Just read it for what it is. And so in doing that, sometimes you get these words, and it's a little bit, Okay, what do we do with that? But I think Jesus is simply saying, believe on me, trust in me. This is a symbol of what I've done for you. Mm-hmm. But I think we all will agree there's going to be sensitivity on understandings of communion. Yeah, and uh, in First Corinthians chapter 11, I mean, uh, people were getting sick and even dying when they were having it with, uh, when they were taking uh, as we call communion in an unworthy manner. So so that doesn't discount that there's a real spiritual component to it, but that doesn't mean it's literally the blood of Jesus. And I think that if somebody has an understanding for what's occurring during the Passover Seder, you can actually see what Jesus is talking about when he says, this is my body broken for you. Because during a p- typical Passover Seder, you have three pieces of matzah that are in one pouch, so it's three in one, of this unleavened bread. Leaven is a representation of sin, so this pure thing 
thing is taken and the second one is taken and it's broken and it's wrapped in a cloth like Jesus is wrapped in a cloth and then it's buried, it's hidden. And then after the meal, it comes back from being hidden and Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you understand what's happening contextually, Jesus is actually showing people death and resurrection and it looks like even giving them an opportunity saying like, just like I'm going to die and be raised from the dead, this opportunity is for you too. If you see that actually contextually occurring, you can tell possibly even what he's referring to in a deeper manner as opposed to as opposed to trying to uh, make it his physical body. Um, although, like I said, there could be spiritual components to it, of course, that work in a deeper level, and I think none of us disagree with that. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll take a break. Come When we come back, lots more guy talk or guys who talk. Let me know what questions you have for the panel, 877-933-2484. I'll try that again, 877-933-2484. Be right back with Jeff, Trevor, and Aaron. When you sponsor a child in need, you change their life. Your child learns that God loves them more than they can imagine and that he has special plans for their life. Your child gets help with school and is taught leadership, life skills, and how to overcome poverty and succeed. Your child gets nutritious food and vital medical care that often saves lives. You might not be able to change the world, but for one child, you can change theirs. Meet the kids. Find your child at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to the show. Guide Talk. We've got time for your question, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. So when, when the Hebrews would clean out the old leaven in preparation for the feast, they needed to do some house cleaning. What was the s- symbolism behind that? Was that yeah. a church discipleship thing? Are we back to that? <laughs> well, because mom said so. Because <laughs> mom said so. Yeah, and you know, it, it's a, it's a kind of a funny process today, right, in Jewish homes. Uh, you, when you get rid of your leaven, you can actually throw it away, or you can sell it to a Gentile for, uh, for, that, for that time and then purchase it back later. But uh, that's that's true. But but really, the, the idea is... Um, to get rid of anything that takes time, really the leaven itself would take time to rise, to remember the imminency of the work that God was doing amongst the people. Because the reason that they were instructed to not have leaven in their homes during the Passover was because they were in such a rush when they left uh, from Egypt. And so the Passover entirely for the people of Israel um, re- well, not entirely, but at least in its, in the statement was to remember how God saved them out of their captivity. It's a time where the Jewish people gather together to remember who they are and where they came from and, and how the Lord miraculously intervened in their lives. And that's one of the reasons for it. But of course, prophetically, um, as we look forward to the Passover and we see it fulfilled in the death of Jesus and, uh, and even his resurrection, uh, correlating with the feast of first fruits on the following Sunday, which according to Jewish tradition is when the sea parts and the people of Israel go into the sea and come out. Um, also in, in accordance with that, possibly removing leaven, because Paul says that leaven is a symbol of sin. Um, and so, uh, the Passover also becomes about removing what is impure. And imputing 
purifying agent. So even if you think about communion, uh, we are drinking wine. And in the first century, wine was a purifying thing because they would put alcohol into water in order to purify it, to remove the bacteria. And then leaven, and uh, if anybody's ever had matzah, which is the unleavened bread, it's good forever. And I exaggerate slightly, but I have boxes that are over a year old. <laughs> because, because, but could you do that with bread? No, because, because bread, or because le- yeast is a defiling agent. So really, uh, the two things that are happening in communion is you're, you're actually removing the thing that defiles and you are putting in something that purifies and that's so much what Jesus does in our lives. So if I come to your house for dinner and you pull out the matzah, I'm going, this could be here. Could have been around for a well, year. You know, it's uh, it's always a guessing game at my house, <laughs> but uh, but I'll tell you, you won't notice the difference. That's that's great. All right, Aaron, Jeff, any comments? Or shall we move one, on? One thing about the, the matzah, you know, matzah, or the, the chametz, which is the, the leaven that you remove out of the house and all that. I like what one uh, person said on this is that it's, it's represented like ego, like like yeast will rise and all that puffs up. Even so, our ego puffs up. And what is ego? Ego is simply edging God out, E-G-O. And so when you think about that, when Jesus came on the scene as the Passover lamb, he came without ego, without sin, without puff up, without pride, and he voluntarily gave himself. And so what a really an example for us to follow in his steps in that regard. So I think it's a good self-check at Passover to remember that. Amen. I would, I, we got a couple minutes here. Let's go back up a level because I think there's this wonderful picture. God gave seven feasts to the nation of Israel. And the first feast we talked to mentioned some of them is Passover, then the un, feast of unleavened bread, then first fruits, and then Pentecost. These were the spring feasts of Israel. Well, Christ fulfilled these four feasts in his life perfectly. So he was the Passover lamb. I do a teaching on the death, the final week of Christ, that the the time that all of Israel is sacrificing their lambs, late in the afternoon, according to the book of Leviticus, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, is taking away the sins of the world, and he's on the cross at the exact same time. He fulfilled the Passover. You just talked about unleavened bread, removing this yeast. He, The death he died, he died for sin. He was buried. He rose again. He was called the firstborn of all creation, the first fruits to be raised. And then, of course, on Pentecost, we get the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, there's the fulfillment of the first four feasts. Well, what about the last three feasts? Well, these feasts, the feasts which are going on in Israel right now, in fact, I left on the Feast of Trumpets, uh, which is the new year for Israel. The Day of Atonement is 10 days later, and then 14, what is it, 14, 14th day? 15th day, 15th day, 15th day yep. later is the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, it just so happens that in Christ's second coming, he will fulfill those three feasts as well. So even in the feasts of Israel that God gave way back in Leviticus to the nation of Israel, those were prophetic pictures, if you will, of the coming Messiah. Cool. Amen. I agree. Amen to that. <laughs> Baruch Hashem. <laughs> All right. 877-933-2484 if you have a question. Uh, what about when they're trying to corner Jesus on the divorce and remarriage? And did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. So 
if we just look at those couple of verses, if you think of your hearts being hard, that would be the case in any relationship that's gone south, that you just have hard hearts. Does that what that means? Or does the hard hearts mean you are in a, in a perpetual sin that you are not repenting of and you're not changing? Yeah, so uh, what what we see here in this section of Scripture, and it's, it really stems from a question, right? And we're talking about Matthew chapter 19, of course, uh, beginning at the, be, at the first verses of the chapter. But when we get to verse 3, it says, The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So this is most, this is a historic, uh, kind of argument that was occurring in the first century Judaism because there's a section in Deuteronomy chapter 24, starting in the very beginning of the chapter, starting in verse one, that gives a scenario and it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanliness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. And so the, the question is, well, what is this uncleanliness? What is this? And so there were two rabbis uh, that uh, we believe were in the first century, Shammai and Hillel, uh, that were had an argument about this recorded in uh, ancient Jewish documents. And they were, and uh, one of them said, well, if you don't even like her appearance, then yeah, that's justified. And then the more conservative, which is Shammai, said that, uh, that well, it's, it's talking about specific sexual sins. Um, and Jesus even seems to give indication of something stronger than that. Um, Jesus seems to give indication that it is simply, it is only for uh, it is only for adultery. And so in, in the statement that he, he makes, he, he relates it again to God's original intention, right? God's original intention for man and woman is to be together forever. So once you unite, uh, let no man divide is what he said. Um, but what occurs is, is when somebody commits adultery, which is, seems to be the instance that we see described here, is that then it breaks that covenant. You see, a, a covenant is something that's agreed upon. And clearly, when we look at what is a marriage covenant, it's a, it's a covenant to be united to this person and nobody else till death do us part. And so if somebody then breaks that by then uniting themselves to another person, then of course, it seems to give indication that this is what the wishes when the divorce can occur, although God in his mercy and his grace would prefer it for us to forgive each other. So the hardness of heart is a situation that occurs within an individual to where they are not able to forgive this other person for what they did. And in certain cases, of course, and this can be a very difficult question, but in certain cases, maybe the person has continued issues in these areas. There's, of course, other reasons and things that occur. But in this instance, it, that's what seems to be addressed is that this person is hurt to the point to where they cannot come to that place of forgiveness and complete reconciliation. Um, a very difficult process. I would not blame somebody again for not being able to, uh, to, to come to that place. Although, of course, the better thing is always forgiveness because that's the love that the Lord offers us despite our continued sin before him. Mm-hmm. This is a bigger topic, so I think we'll continue it after the break. 
You have a question for the panel, let me know, 877-933-2484. It's Guy Talk. What we do is you ask the questions and we do our very best to answer them. I've got Jeff Verdorn, Trevor Rubenstein, and Aaron Broughton as my panel today. Again, 877-933-2484, and I promise we'll be right back. Welcome to the show. If you just tuned in, it's Guy Talk. We're looking forward to hearing from you. I know you got a question. Maybe you've been reluctant in the past to send it, but let's do it today. Just get it done. Get it over with. Text it to 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. My panel today is Jeff, Trevor, and Aaron. And uh, right before the break, we were talking, uh, Aaron, or Trevor, you were talking about... Marriage and divorce and remarriage, and Jesus was obviously going to bat for women because in that culture, um, men ran the show, didn't they, when it came to divorce? Yeah, of course. And the the way it's even stated in uh, Deuteronomy is the man gives the woman the certificate of divorce. But but partially, uh, the reason that the certificate became required was actually, as you said, to defend the women because uh, women weren't working in society at this yeah. point in time. So so if a man married her and threw her out, she would be left destitute. Um so it was it was really the mercy of the Lord that allowed them then to uh to remarry it looks like in those situations because otherwise at least at the time of Moses uh, a single woman would have no way of providing for herself because uh, she's already left her father's home. Um and uh and then in addition to that, um virgins weren't weren't really uh the desirable type or non virgin excuse me weren't the desirable type for marriage uh, so uh, uh so the re this remarriage um thing really seemed to be merciful to them and and biblically if I'm not mistaken the uh the the penalty for adultery was death so um so this was a really a source of of uh, mercy that uh, the, the Lord allowed, but the hardness of heart is what separated people. And, and even the prophet Hosea, right, is uh, um, he, he, the Lord instructed him to take a adulterous wife because that was to represent Israel's adultery against God. But yet he also encouraged him to take her back. And uh, because the Lord, again, uh, he wants us to be reconciled to him. It's a beautiful thing. Actually, and Aaron was talking about, because we, uh, as 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 uh, Jeff was just saying here earlier, that we are now in the time of the fall feast of Israel, and uh, and Aaron was even using the example of the feast of trumpets, really having to do with God's reconciliation, um, it, which I think uh, kind of illuminates on this idea even more. Yeah, absolutely. So the feast of trumpets, Leviticus twenty three gives the overview. That think of it as the cliff notes. If people still use cliff notes, that is. But uh, it's kind of like the overview of the seven feasts of Israel. There's really three verses that mention the Feast of Trumpets, or really the day of the blowing, which is what a trumpet does. 
And so uh, the the first time you read it is in the writings of Moses in, in Leviticus and Numbers. But you don't really see any specific mention of the Feast of Trumpets until Nehemiah chapter 8. At that time, Israel's gone through many years of history, centuries. They have fallen. They have sinned. They went into captivity, into Assyria first, and then to Babylon. And now they're coming back. They rebuild the temple with Zerubbabel, and then Nehemiah comes to build the walls. They read the word of God. In fact, it was even translated because even some of the Hebrew had been lost. Make a long story short, the people, they repent. They're weeping. And then, but Nehemiah says, stop, we're going to rejoice. And so going back to Mount Sinai, when the law was given, the seven feasts, when they were given, more or less, Israel, more or less, in the book of Exodus 19, they said to God, all you said, we will do. In other words, they said, as in a marriage vow, I do. And we know what happened after that. History was not good. And uh, so God, in fact, the prophets say that God, in a sense, divorced his people, but he always had them at arm's reach come back to me. There's always a remnant. You see that. And so it's a beautiful picture of that. So Rosh Hashanah, and we see even in the future, Jeff, maybe you can allude to this as well, that the Feast of Trumpets foreshadows the regathering of, of Israel where they will truly understand who Jesus really is. And, mm-hmm. and uh, that vow will be reconciled. And that sets them up perfectly for the Day of Atonement. I think it's fascinating that, that, that I do, that you just talked about, that Israel did. I mean, the relationship between God and Israel and this covenant that was made between them. And of course, Israel was not faithful to these covenants. And yet God says he hates divorce, right? He do, He's not for divorce. You mentioned this earlier. God's design is for reconciliation. But even though Israel really was a, was spiritually adulterous to God, they went off and followed other gods. Did God divorce Israel? And the answer is, of course not. He was faithful to them. In the same way, the church, you know, Paul says, I tell you this mystery that a man and a woman will become one flesh, but he's really talking about the bride, the church, and Christ. We've become one. We've entered into that covenant. And even when we drift away, we know that God will never forsake us. He will never divorce his bride. And so when he brings it down to the human level, one of the conditions that is clearly spelled out in scripture is if there is adultery in the relationships, you're permitted to divorce. It's not recommended, it's not prescribed, but it's allowed. And I think God sees that as, I know how hard it is for the one that you love to wander away from you. And so for us, he allows it. But I think one of the great pictures is, is God never does that, even when we wander. All right. Thank you for that, Jeff Verdorn. All right, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, what does it mean to not give to dogs what is sacred? Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye your pearls before swine. What does that mean? I was just teaching in Israel, and we had a we had an Israeli tour guide. He is from New Zealand. Uh, he's a Jew. He's born again. And was talking about in Caesarea Maritime the story of Peter coming to this Gentile's house, right? Well, we know in Joppa, Jaffa, in Joppa, he had, Peter had just received this vision at Simon the Tanner's house of this tablecloth coming down and God saying, there's nothing unclean, Peter. And I think that's twofold. I think it means that this law, this dietary law, it, we're no longer under the law when we're in Christ. So, But two, that Peter, it was okay for him to go 
into the house of a Gentile. Two men were going to come down from Caesarea and say, hey, there's this guy named Cornelius and he wants to talk to you. And Peter went into his house and preached the gospel. And guess what happened? The Holy Spirit came upon Cornelius and his household just as it had come upon the the the, the disciples and the, these Jewish disciples at the beginning. And thankfully, because I'm a Gentile, so I'm very thankful that this day happened and that Peter did go into that Gentile's house and preach the gospel. Well, I'm telling this story, and my Jewish guide reminds us that why wasn't he allowed to go into the house? The Jews considered Gentiles dogs. That's what how they described it. It was not permitted for a Jew to enter into the house of the Gentile. But now, after Christ, there's no Jew, no Greek, no Gentile, male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Yeah, and the, the text here uh, seems to really give indication. We're just talking about uh, judging people unrighteously, right? Uh, judging people harshly. So, uh, for example, uh, if if I have a minor sin and uh, or I have a major sin, excuse me, but I judge you based on your minor sin, uh, this is really kind of what's what's being uh, the introduction to this statement. So, so it looks like really it's talking about be uh, really be mindful as to who, who we're who we're giving these good things to. Right, depend the the heart of the individual. So he's talking about hypocrites here in particular, um, and so and so in this instance, it's like if I, if I'm going to spend time sharing the gospel, and actually I just had this instance this week. You know, I'm a, a missionary to the Jewish community, and uh, and I had an individual just use the most vile, horrible language talking about our Lord, just just vile, vile, and, and continuously and. And I addressed him very kindly and asked him to stop doing that. And he continued to. And uh, it just was apparent that what this individual was looking for was was just to uh, to attack and to be horrible and to be, you know, that was their intention. I, I don't blame them. They don't have the Lord. And so I don't, you know, I, I, I feel bad for them in that situation. But at a certain point in time, it just came to, okay, this this conversation isn't worth continuing. It's going nowhere. And so instead, I kind of brushed the dust off my feet and continued to somebody that was more willing to listen to the gospel. Yeah, so the dogs are those who are far away from God outside, and some of them are more contentious than others. I think of that passage, uh, throwing pearls before swine as well. And, you know, at some point you do. I think you're right. You dust off your feet and you move on and look for someone who is willing to hear the message. Very good. All right. Uh, here's a question. How does the Holy Spirit help remind us of our full inheritance in heaven? Oh, Romans chapter 8 is really the, the whole thing start to finish. deals with the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the believer. It reminds us uh, perfectly that, it, first of all, in, in Christ, we, have no con- we are not under any condemnation, that we are free from sin, from shame, uh, from guilt, and the Holy Spirit is really the witness of that. And one of the key parts in Romans chapter 8, and I'll make sure, I make sure I'm not reading it on a context here, but um, it really describes our inheritance that we are our sons. We have that inheritance with Christ that we are adopted. And I think a lot of people, when they look at adoption, you know, when someone adopts a baby into their home, okay, come become another member. But in this idea, it's this even a stronger idea is that you have given all the rights and privileges. My, one of my favorite movies, Bill, is uh, Ben-Hur. 
you know, the old Charlton Heston movie. Mm-hmm. Not, not the remake. You know, they do too many remakes. Not quite the same. But anyways, after he was saved, if you know the story of Ben-Hur, he was on that slave, that galley ship. And remember, he saved the life of that Roman commander. Later on, that Roman commander, you know, he sees Ben-Hur becoming a charioteer and very famous. And then he surprised him one day in front of his host of friends and family. Uh, he is now my son. My son who died, he is now taking the place. He bears my name. He now has the inheritance. He has everything. And that's how we are in Christ. We ha- we are joint heirs with him in that inheritance. So that's how the Holy Spirit reminds us that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit in, uh, in Romans 8, verse 16, that we are the children of God. And so that brings us assurance of who we are in Christ. And the Holy Spirit simply over and over again uh, is, is actually mentioned several times in Romans chapter 8, solidifying that. I love that. Thank you, Aaron Broughton. Yeah, you know, there's that chapter, that great chapter ends with there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's so many places in the New Testament where this inheritance that we have in Christ is described and that it's it's guaranteed. So you go to Ephesians 1 and it's it says that we've been given the Holy Spirit to deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. At the end of the book, you get to Revelation and it says he who overcomes will inherit all this. What is this? Uh, John just saw a vision of the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And if you are an overcomer, you will inherit all this. Who is it that overcomes, Over is an overcomer? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Christ, First John 5, because we are in Christ Jesus who overcame the world, John sixteen thirty three. So, um, look, we have an inheritance. That is our hope. Um, and uh, it is guaranteed our future is kept in heaven for us, shielded by God's power until that day. And, and look, I don't know how people deal with the issues in this life without an eternal hope. Um, and Christians, you know, I've been to unbelievers' funerals, and I've been to believers' funerals. And those two things are two completely different events because Christians know that one day, we will be united with everybody that we knew that believed in the Lord in the Lord's presence for all of eternity. That's our inheritance. And Trevor, you're looking up something. I'm not sure you're ready or interested in talking right now, but I just wanted to <laughs> pause and give you a, a moment. And if not, I'll move on. No, we can move on. Let's Bradley. move on. Actually, it's an excellent time to take a very short break and give you a time to text your question over. It is time for Guide Talk and plenty more Guide Talk ahead. So 877 Again, 877-933-2484. I'm looking at Jeff, I'm looking at Trevor, and I'm looking at Aaron, and they're ready to take your questions. So send them over. Be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold, host of The Afternoon Show. My friend and colleague, Susie Larson, will say that even when you feel discouraged, God is still there. He's still good. He cares about you and is in the business of fixing what is broken to make you whole. Experience his peace today. This month, thanks to our friends at Thomas Nelson, Faith Radio is giving away 100 copies of Susie Larson's new book, Waking Up to the Goodness of God, 40 Days Toward Healing and Wholeness. You can enter to win yours right now at MyFaithRadio.com radio.com connecting faith to life faith radio back with guy talk even though we've never stopped talking during the break 
have to quiet you guys down to start the restart the show. Wyatt's looking at you guys like, can you be quiet for my two bad, seconds? My bad. My bad. That's all right. That's yep. all right. Let me know what questions you have. We want to answer your questions. Here's a, one that just came in. Can a born-again uh, Christian become demon-possessed? First time parish when you need them. Yeah, no, this, we actually, uh, this is a common question. We've received this many, many times. Um, there are demon possessions described in the New Testament, in the Gospels, um, but they all seem to be anyway, uh, with, of people that are non-believers. The Holy Spirit hadn't come yet, um, and so the Holy Spirit hadn't filled anybody. After Pentecost, Christians, those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, are filled with the Holy Spirit. Their spirit, which was dead outside of Christ, has become alive. Remember, John, uh, Jesus said to uh, Nicodemus, the spirit gives birth to spirit. That's what being born again is all, all about. You're being born spiritually. You are now united with the creator of the universe spiritually. Whoa, what a thought. And I think once you're united with God and filled with his spirit, uh, you cannot be possessed by a demon. You can be tormented. The world can um, persecute you and put you down, even destroy you. Do not fear him who can destroy the body. Uh, this world can even take you out physically. Uh, but nothing, nothing can, in, can touch that eternal inheritance that we talked about just before the break. All right. Thank you for that, Jeff Verdorn. Um, here's another question. If any man will come to me, let's see. I'm sorry, I had it, then I lost it. No, I got it back. Everyone, calm down, guys. Just calm down. I got it. Just waiting for pizza. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're going to be waiting a while. All right, it is uh, Luke nine twenty three. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Is that a salvation message or a sanctification message or both? Yeah, it's clearly part of our growth process. Um, and uh, obviously, my salvation is not dependent on my being on the cross. My salvation is dependent on Jesus dying on the cross. So uh, so this is uh, that's incredibly important in recognizing that. And there, there's not, it's not done by my works, but by the work of our Lord that we are able to attain our justification. But all that being said, there's a process that the Lord does in us. And part of this process is recognizing to die to myself and actually the problems of self. Most sin um, tends to come from my self-focus or my self-desires. And so, and so really this is a call for selflessness, being, uh, putting my life second. And the gospel first, the kingdom of God first. Uh, you'll see that scripture is very, very uh, um, consistent in encouraging people to um, to put their lives secondary to the kingdom of God. And, uh, and that's really what this is a call for in much of our lives. Of course, we do have needs and we have callings that the Lord gives us as parents and, and uh, husbands and wives and in uh, children, and so the, the Lord has callings for us, and what that looks like, and how we can honor Him in those things. But again, all of it 
should be done to the glory of the Lord because everything that we're called to do really should testify as to who he is. So when we honor and love each other and care for one another, of course, this is also selfless. Mm-hmm. Nice, nicely done, Trevor. Yeah, I think I, I actually think it's both, right? So, I mean, as as you're describing this, I'm thinking, you know, you, you said this, this self is at the root of a lot of sin. And I, I think it's at a lot of the uh, the root of of stiff arming the Lord and his call to believe in him as well. You know, that I think of that passage, pride goes before the fall. If you are going to trust in yourself, uh, you're not going to be participating in the kingdom of heaven, right? So from a salvation standpoint, uh, you need to, we know that the re- through the rest of the New Testament, that you need to die to self and live for Christ, right? This That's the whole idea of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We've been crucified with Christ and have been raised with him. So the picture of our death and burial and resurrection. At the same time, we need to keep doing that. So just as like in Colossians, it says, uh, you have put on your new self or taken off your old self, you have put on your new self. So Philippians says, so take off your old self and put on your new self. Well, why do I need to keep taking off and putting on what God has already taken off and put it on? And the idea is, is that, well, because we need to, yield to him to submit to him every single day uh, but one one more point and be interested in you guys' take on this some want to describe this verse as saying you see the way of the cross is hard and we have to carry it and we got to work at it and it's hard kind of thing and it's like no i i don't think that's the picture jesus said come to me all you are who are weary and i will give you rest and there there remains a sabbath rest for his people because we've been saved we now rest from our own work so i think it's a, truly a picture of our death and resurrection more than uh, than our having to work our, at our salvation and keeping our salvation do you see what i'm saying thoughts yeah and i think that dying is hard <laughs> dying to self is hard so, so that so there so there is that component to it and and i think that you're right yeah it's not talking about labor per se. Uh, I think that you're probably right there, Joe. I think you're looking in context. The verses right before this, this is Peter confessing Christ. This is at uh, Caesarea Philippi, Banias. If you've ever been to Israel, this is a must place. Did you guys, did you go on that? that we did. Place? Three out of the four trips, we went up to Caesarea Philippi. And okay. the gates of Hades right there and that old thing. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, if you, unless you've seen it firsthand, or, or go to YouTube, you can see almost anything yeah. nowadays. But it helps put that in perspective. You know, Jesus saying, who do you say that I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he talks then about that the Son of Man will suffer. He will be uh, persecuted basically by the, scree- uh, the, the priests and the scribes, be slain and rise the third day. So Jesus is talking about the way he would die. And now he's telling his disciples, take up your cross as well, like I will. In other words, you follow in the path of the Savior. So it's a discipleship that starts at salvation and then continues on. And so I think sometimes we think of that, yeah, we almost look at it as a duty. Oh, man, I got to wake up and die again today. I think maybe another way we can word it is like simply yield yourself, submit yourself mm-hmm. to God, put yourself under his authority, take his His yoke upon you, let him do it. And so if we try to do, I think people, so many Christians try to do the God thing in their own strength. We're supposed to simply rest in God, simply trust him, simply obey him, walk with him. And yeah, there's days that are not easy. We do have suffering, but is the suffering worth it compared to the weight of eternal glory? Mm. Absolutely. Mm. All right, gentlemen, can you talk about how oaths were used in Jewish tradition? In Matthew 5, Jesus says, don't make an oath or at least don't swear by God. Aren't some vows good? 
like a marriage vow. I'm currently not Jewish, so one of you guys answer. I, I always submit to Aaron with his knowledge of uh, ancient Jewish traditions. Okay, <laughs> that's that's the sign of a of a of someone that was raised Jewish. Is often we have no idea about tradition. <laughs> All right, Aaron, I'm looking your direction. Okay. Come on. All right, let's see what I can what we can come up with. Some, you know, sometimes you just need the Lord's help. Lord, how how do you want me to answer? This? <laughs> um, yeah. But oaths were definitely important. I think one of the things that uh, Jesus is saying here, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, is this, and it kind of sums this all up. When you make an oath, you're making a promise, you're making an agreement. Think of like a business transaction. Let's say back there was two farmers, you know, they agreed on selling maybe some sheep or goats or something back in the first century. Think of that order. And someone didn't come through on their promise. So in some Jewish people, they would swear by... Um, they would swear by heaven, swear by God's throne, or they would swear by Jerusalem. You know, they were going to up the ante, like, you know, I'll, I'll swear in my mother's grave that I will do this. You know, they're making that oath. But what happened was people were saying that maybe out of their lips, but it wasn't coming from the heart. And that's the kingdom that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, that this kingdom is going to be vastly different if you follow me. And so he basically says, let your communication or the way you, you talk, your words be yes, yes, or no, no. In other words, shoot straight. You know, let's let's be honest about this. You know, don't try to give an ulterior motive um, to or or you know opinion behind the back type of thing. You know, when we were young, I remember you know you make a promise and you cross your fingers behind your back. <laughs> you yeah. know, and that's kind of what Jesus is calling them out on is what's happening. And uh, oaths were held to very 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 uh, heavy standards. Uh, you were, if you said something, you were to adhere to that and. And so, if you're using the authority of the Lord and you're wrong, uh, that that's uh, that's really a form of blasphemy mm-hmm. in a sense. So, uh, and we we have the story right in the book of Judges with the poor man that gave the oath that the next thing that comes out of his tent he'll sacrifice, and it was his daughter. And it looks like, at least from the way that the text even explains it, there was an expectation that he would fulfill his oath. Um, and uh, and so there, it's it's a very, uh, very, very important thing, at least from what we read in the Hebrew Scriptures. Mm-hmm. All right. We've got hour two ahead. First hour went fast, didn't it, guys? It did. Yeah, flies by. So we've got another full hour of guide talk, which means all you have to do is send your question over. We still have some remaining questions from this hour that did not get addressed yet. So they're going to be at the top of the uh, the pile of questions for the next hour. So if you didn't hear your question answered, don't go anywhere because we're going to get to it. And if you want to send over your question, text it to 877-933-2484. And because prayer is an ongoing conversation with God and it can change your life, we want to pray for you. So you can call or text your prayer requests or visit MyFaithRadio.com. You can also text your prayer request to 877-933-2484. And we'll be right back with Hour 2 of Guy Talk in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.